0: This message is brought to you by House on the Rock Fellowship. We're a church that serves and cares for the Miami Valley region in Ohio. Before you continue, make sure to access the notes from our download section of our message page and have your Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Good morning. For those of you who don't know, my name is Paul. I'm a pastor and teacher here. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us this morning. Like Mo said, it means a lot that you'd come out on a Sunday morning and hang out with this ragtag bunch of Jesus followers. If you would, please take out the notes that you received when you walked in. Inside is a message guide. It's a way that you can write things down that you want to remember or maybe a verse to look up at another time. And we'll dive in and dive down into this together. In Greek mythology is a character named Antaeus. Antaeus is a giant. He is the child of Poseidon, the ocean, and Gaia, the earth. And this giant would challenge anyone to wrestling. And anyone that he wrestled with, he would defeat, he would beat. Much because of his contact to the earth. So if you can think about wrestling and what it takes to wrestle and grapple and pin. And any single time someone would pin him to the ground, instead of it defeating him, he would draw more strength and would make him stronger because of his contact to the earth. And he went undefeated. That is, until he challenged Hercules. Hercules was in the course of running his trials and doing his trials, and Antaeus challenged Hercules to wrestle, a man who'd never been beaten. And it flabbergasted Hercules because it seemed every single time that the hide was turning and that Hercules was winning, and he would pin and he would pin Antaeus. And Antaeus seemed to grow stronger. Hercules would hold him down, and he would get stronger. Hercules would throw him to the ground and his opponent got stronger until finally Hercules remembered that, oh, Antaeus' mom is the goddess of the earth. He must be drawing his strength, being rooted with the ground. And so eventually, instead of throwing him down, Hercules lifted him up and held him in the air so he could not touch the earth. Eventually, it drained Antaeus of his strength And Hercules defeated him. As long as Antaeus stayed rooted and stayed low, stayed humble, if you will, remembered his roots, remembered his foundation, he was victorious. It was when he was lifted up, held high, that he was defeated. Is this not the challenge of the church? The local church. It It is when a church stays humble, stays low, stays rooted, remembers its foundation, remembers its essence, that local church will be victorious. But if a church will be comprised of people that will hold themselves up, will hold themselves high, that that church will surely be defeated. We, as we have this conversation about justice in our fellowship, a conversation we've had for two months, and we have this week and next week before we finish this series. There's something about justice that's to be rooted in the heart and the soul of a local church. Justice to steward the flourishing of others. Jesus came, For that purpose, anointed and set to proclaim good news, gospel, the poor, gospel, the vulnerable. It's the story that we're a part of. God loves it. We just read it in the psalm. God loves justice. After all, didn't he send his one and only son into the world? Heaven come to earth. We've talked about the vulnerable in our midst. What are those things that tear at the fabric of society? As we seek to consume, as we get tribal, as we get militant and oppressive with those around us. And as we do that in the fabric of humanity tears and people fall through the cracks, those that God has created, his image bearers, his ambassadors and artwork, his adorned children. We understand our responsibility, our priority to care for the vulnerable in our midst. Without and within, having voices that speak against injustice, hands that do the work of justice. Well, today we want to talk about it one more time. Then next week, before we go out and have our church gathering picnic out there at 10 o'clock, we'll be here. We'll talk about a vision for justice. But what does it mean to restore the community, the fellowship to justice? Not just an individual, but an entire body, the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul, if you turn to the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul speaks to this in a letter when he maybe should be speaking about something else. The church in Galatia had gotten confused and lost its way. And so he writes to them, kind of frustrated. It's one of the first letters that the Apostle Paul writes. There's the Old Testament, there's the New Testament. Within the New Testament are all these letters written by apostles to churches to help them stay on the path of following Jesus. And the church in Galatia had gotten confused and kind of, is Jesus enough? Shouldn't we add some of the extra Jewish stuff that we did, the temple to following Jesus. And so he's trying to anchor them in the message of the gospel. And part of that, he shares his conversion story, his calling, his ministry to bring the gospel to Gentiles, those who aren't Jews. He tells the story of meeting with uh, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, Peter, James, John and how he was recognized to be a messenger to the Gentiles. They were recognized as being messengers to the Jews. And in that meeting, and Paul accounts it in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10, they said to me, he said, in fact, Chris, we go and bring it up. Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. The next one. They asked me to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Surely there's other things that he should be focusing on. Surely there's more important things that Peter, James, and John, these are the big guys of the church, right? This is, this is the inner circle of all the things that he needs to remember, that these churches need to be established in. Paul, before you go, remember, take care of the poor. He says the very thing. I was eager to do. To understand where this fits in the DNA of the church, maybe we should go back to the beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 6, I want to show you something. Acts chapter 6. Jesus is ascended His followers have begun to gather in the upper room. They've gone forth. They've preached Pentecost. Believers are gathering more and more within Jerusalem. People leaving um, the worship of the temple and following Jesus. And there's a crisis that arises up within the church. And it's a justice issue. It's a justice issue. There are some within the community that are falling through the cracks that are vulnerable and aren't being cared for. I want to read it for you. This is Acts chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 down through uh, 7. Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, that's awesome, church is growing. Who wants a church to grow? Want a growing church? I want a growing church. Yep. A complaint by the Hellenists. These are... Gentiles, Greeks who converted converted to the Jewish faith and now to Jesus, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the whole church is getting together like, hey, listen, the Jewish widows, they're being taken care of. What about the widows that are outside that support system? What about the other ethnic group? What about these people? So how are they getting taken care of? the very beginning of the church, there was a justice crisis. And so the twelve summoned uh, the full number of the disciples. says, all right, let's get the whole church together. It's gutsy. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we'll appoint to this duty. We'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, or Chorus, Nicanor, Tamon, Farmenaeus, Nicholas, proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And when the word of God and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Isn't that Interesting. The church is growing, but it reaches a point where there's a a crisis and it's a crisis of justice. And so the leadership says, we need to make sure we are structured in such a way that the message can continue to go out and we can care for the vulnerable in our midst. And so they put a team together. That team is sent out to care for and do the work of justice. And as a result, did you see what happened next? Because they made justice a priority, it elevated the name of Jesus, the validity of the ministry of the church, and the church grew. Wow. So it's 17 years later when the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church and accounting the ministry that he has begun to have amongst these churches, these Gentile churches, and how when he got together with the leadership in Jerusalem, 17 years later from when the church started, they say to the Apostle Paul, hey, don't forget, we need to take care of the poor. the Apostle Paul. Understanding the DNA of the church. Understanding the purpose of the church, the body of Christ, because Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor. It's the very thing I'm eager to do. Because this isn't an ethnic thing. It's not a, a racial thing. It's not a This denomination thing or that denomination thing. It's something that's rooted in the very DNA of what a church, a local fellowship is supposed to be and supposed to do. What do we do? In the proclaiming of the message of the gospel, we are keenly aware to care for the vulnerable in our midst. The Jewish leader says, hey, we're going to make sure that this happens in our gathering here at Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul, as you go throughout the Mediterranean, whether you're planting churches in Galatia or Thessalonica or Philippi, no matter where you go, make sure that you care for the poor. If justice is a part of the church's purpose and DNA, then it needs to be our priority. Not an offshoot thing, not a side thing. The leadership didn't say to the Apostle Paul, don't forget to have coffee ready on Sunday mornings. They didn't say to the Apostle Paul, hey, make sure everybody wears a certain style of clothes. Hey, make sure you play a certain style of music. Make sure that you have this type of children's ministry. Make sure you do those types of Bible studies. Make sure you preach those types of messages. Paul, before you go, don't forget. Remember the poor. Because Paul knows what he's doing. Not this Paul. I'm not speaking some weird three-person thing, okay? Okay? Kind of full of himself, isn't he? (laughs) Apostle Paul, before you go, Remember the poor. Very thing I will make sure we do. So how do we do that as a church family? How do we make this part of our priority? This morning, let me highlight three areas. One is our practices. Next is in our prayers. And then finally in our posture. Remember, this isn't me talking about us as individuals. This is me trying to put before us as a whole how we as a fellowship need to be remembering the poor. The very thing we need to be eager to do. Let's talk about practices. When we began this journey a couple months ago, I said, hey, let's, let's take a story, one of Jesus' stories, and use that to kind of bring us back to this, this, this theme, the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. And we, we produce these justice guides, verses to memorize in the back and the story on the front. Let me remind you of the story and read it, because I think it gives us a few key ways in how to think about our practice of justice, stewarding the flourishing of another. Let me read for you. This is Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. You can follow along in your copy. Maybe you have this. Or in, or in the scriptures. Let me remind you of the story. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to walk in the life that God has promised? He said to him, Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered to Jesus. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. His answer is live rightly, righteousness. Righteousness is walking correctly before God, walking rightly with one another. Jesus says, that's right. Live rightly, pursue righteousness, but he, desiring to justify himself, meaning, all right, I want to make sure I'm doing this. <laughs> okay? I want to make sure I'm doing what I was told to do. Who's my neighbor? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the walking before God part. I got that. But I'm struggling, you know, who's the neighbor that I'm, I need to be? Who's the neighbor? And Jesus' answer A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers, stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road. He came, saw him, passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, passed by on the other side. Religious leaders, people who should know, stayed clear of the vulnerable. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, an ethnic outcast. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, are you being a neighbor? In that story, a couple of ways that we can think about practice at House on the Rock within our community. One is relief. How are we offering relief to the vulnerable in our midst? In the same way that the good Samaritan saw the man who had been beaten and robbed and he brought to him and bandaged and fed and nurtured him. How do we bring immediate relief to people in their time of need? That's the question. We like to jump to, well, what's the story? And what did they do to get themselves in this mess? And that's not the question. That's a different issue. Right now the question is, hey, they're hungry. How are we feeding them? They're bruised and broken. How are we bringing them healing? They need a place to stay. How are we bringing them housing? The question is relief. I'm very thankful at House on the Rock and we shared this rose and I shared this with you last week. We have worked to structure justice financially into the rhythm of the church so that teams like the Hope team is able to bring relief to those who are outside of our fellowship, are outside of our community. Phone call comes in, a Facebook message comes in. Hey, I can't pay my bills. Hey, I need a place to stay. Hey, I don't have any food. And there is resourcing available so that we can provide immediate relief on a corporate level. I challenged you last week to participate in that on an individual level, but also we've built it into our life at a corporate level. And then within our fellowship, our finance team charged with benevolence, how do we, when we need to, bring relief to those inside of the church family? Inside of the church family. Bringing relief. Relief when people ask or we become aware through a conversation at life group or ministry team or we bump into someone out in the halls. Those are important. And what we said was, and what's unique within our budget, is that as giving increases, those line items grow because they're percentages. So as giving at the church increases and year after year, by God's grace, over seven years, every single year, the budget grows and giving grows. I think one of the reasons is because we make justice a priority. We're able to give more away and help more people in their times of need. Relief. We need to be giving Relief. But the good Samaritan also put the man uh, upon his animal and took him to an inn and provided a system to restore the man. Not just relief, which is the immediate need, but restoration. How do we get this man back on his feet? How do we nurture him and care for him so that this situation doesn't happen again? Restore. It's more difficult when we're talking about individuals outside of that we're not walking in relationship with. But one of the challenges and charges that goes to our finance team is when we come alongside and are invited to be helpful, what can we do to help that family, that household or that individual get back on their feet? And so this is not us being nosy. We're not being jerks. Might feel like that. But hey, can we sit down and is there any way, maybe we can look at your bills and see how are we spending things or where are you shopping? Or can we talk about the landlord situation? What's going on here so that we can restore you out of vulnerability and get you to a place where you are now a thriving, flourishing human being? How do we restore? That asks a lot of us. But also practice, reform, reform, relief, restore, reform. It's not explicit in the passage, but I'd like to think the good Samaritan, one of the reasons that he had to go away for a couple of days is because he had to go talk to the mayor and figure out why people keep getting robbed on this street. What is going on here at this stretch of land between Jerusalem and Jericho that people keep getting robbed here at this spot? This isn't the first time it's happened, or is it? Oh, no, there's an entire legacy of people getting robbed here? Reforming the structures of society. Speaking truth to power. Asking system questions. Engaging in town hall meetings. Being politically proactive in a voice, in a presence? What's going on here? What can we do to sew up this tear so that other people don't fall through the same cracks? That's a big question. I don't think a church is allowed to do this. I don't think so. The government's taking care of it. We don't have to worry about it. You have coffee and donuts this morning? Good. Good. How are we engaging in relief, restore, and reform? If you go to the end of Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul has this to say. Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. I like that sound. That's a good sound. I like that sound. is that good? That's a good sound. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, as you see someone in need, Let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Especially those of the household of faith. So ministries of justice outside, ministries of justice inside. As we have opportunity, how are we engaging those things? As I've said before, I'm pretty sure the best ideas are not coming from me. You will be prompted. You will be led. Hey, have we thought about this? Hey, have you noticed this? Hey, pastor, we should. And you know what I'll say? Yes. You go do that. No, that's a awesome. You should do that. Give it a whirl. Think it through. Try it out. Well, what if it doesn't work? It doesn't work. Okay, whatever. We'll try something else. But you go give that a run. Let me know how I can help. We need to keep this a priority, our practice of justice. It should be explicit within the life of the church. So next Sunday, we'll all gather together, both gatherings at 10 o'clock, okay? 10 o'clock here. Afterwards, we'll go out there for picnicking, okay? Harry's bringing all the potato salad and all the mustard and ketchup for the hot dogs, okay? But we're also going to have opportunities to engage in, because I'm not a fan of picnics for the sake of picnics. Really not. So, hey, we'll have some tables set up where you can bring socks for shoes for the shoeless, where you can bring food stuff to help the the food trucks that the Salvation Army drives around so the kids can eat during the summer. Uh, There's lists of food things that they need inside of your notes. Let's fill up tables. We're going to have speakers from Sydney and Piqua and Troy saying, here, here's ministry opportunities. If you want to engage and you live in Troy or you live in Piqua or you live in Sydney, here's places where you can go and you can help. Remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. It needs to be a priority. Not just our practice, but also our prayers how we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us Us, food, our daily needs, engaging in prayer, intercessory, bridging, gap-standing prayer, heaven drawn to earth. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point because in a few weeks, I'm going to spend a lot of time on this point. As for a while, we talk about prayer, specifically interceding prayer. The kind of prayer that stands in the gap. The kind of prayer that confronts systems of evil. Confronts strongholds of principalities and powers in dark places, spiritual places. The kind of prayer that engages angelic support. The kind of prayer that humbles us and weakens us and exhausts us. Have you ever left prayer and you were exhausted? Like you're travailing, like you're toiling in labor? I've been with my wife as she delivered three kids. At no point in any of those moments did she say, that was easy. She threatened my life a few times. <laughs> but at no point, I mean, women, maybe this was your experience. I've never bumped into this ever happening with every, any woman I've ever known that has given birth. Said, wow, that was, that was a piece of cake. All right. Whew, I'm good. No. And yet, it's that type of language that accompanies interceding prayer, where you are birthing a transformation in kingdom space. And there is weeping, and there is screaming, and there is toil. You're like, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I, I want to do that. <laughs> well, maybe this is why your spiritual life is the way that it is then. Let me take you to a passage that's really kind of captured me and not letting go. And it's a passage that we'll come to in a few weeks, but just to kind of sprinkle and poke the bear. In Ezekiel 22, I'm going to start reading 23 down through the end of the chapter. You can follow along or write it down. Uh, Ezekiel, one of the prophets of God, recording the words of God, God's judgment against the leadership of Israel against their prophets, their priests, and their princes. Ezekiel was clearly a Baptist because they're all alliterated. And then look at what the condemnation is from God against the people and what God is looking for. Ezekiel 22, I'm going to start reading 23 all the way down just so you can kind of get the full scope. And see if you can, as I'm reading through, hear the echoes of things that we've already talked about. The vulnerable, systems of oppression, foreigner, poor, and the responsibility we speak and to do. Ezekiel 22, verse 23. The word of the Lord came to me. This is God speaking, okay? Son of man, say to her. This is Israel, Jerusalem. You are a land that is not cleansed or reigned upon in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They've taken treasure, precious things. They've made many widows in her midst. Her priests have done violence to my law, have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I'm profaned among them. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, oh, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and have exhorted from the sojourner without justice. Okay, so just before I finish the chapter, God looks at Israel and Jerusalem, and says it is covered and drenched with injustice. Systems of power and people in position who are exhorting and oppressing the poor and the foreigner and the widow for their own self-gain. Building up their own financial empires and justifying it with false faith. The people have stained the land with injustice. From what we know and what we've studied over the last couple months, how do you think God feels about this? What do you think God wants to do about this? Look what happens next. And I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their own deeds upon their heads declares the Lord God. The land is drenched and stained with injustice. And we know God as holy and God as light and God as consuming fire. And so he is set to pour his wrath upon these people. And in his character, he is justified to do so. But God is not just a consuming fire. God is not just light. God is also love. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And so what did he do? He says, so I looked. Is there anyone who will intercede for this nation? Because the wrath is ready to come. He says, I looked for someone who would build up the wall, who would establish the defenses, who would create a gap and stand in that gap. Because of the consequences of your injustice, judgment is coming. Is there someone who will pray on their behalf? And God said, I found no one. And in that is an important lesson in prayer. That the heavens are the Lord's, but earth he has given to man. Meaning, it's your responsibility to take care of this. If you see something wrong, and if you see something by which you need me to engage, you need to ask. If you see injustice, we need to pray about it. Your kingdom come and your will be done. Deliver us from evil. That's not just some vain, empty thing that Christians do because we're going to stay out of the politics. It is fire and it is force and it is power and it is shifting the tide. And God still says, as he looks at the United States, is there someone who will stand in the gap? Because the cup of my wrath is full. And so when we pray, we pray intentionally. Engaging is the body of Christ. Your kingdom come and your will be done. God, I see this. I'm asking for. God, I sense this. I'm praying about. God, I feel that there are. So I'm engaging, God. Would you please, as the legislative body, would you execute on behalf of? And we pray through until we get through. We need to be praying about justice. And so, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about this. And prayerfully, we'll do more than just talk about it. Prayfully, a team of will rise up and say, we will stand in the gap. Yeah, we'll pray for Grandma's toenail. Sure, we'll do that too. By all means, Grandma stubbed her toe. We want to pray about that. But more than that, God, Father, Deliver us from this evil and deliver us from this evil. We knight ourselves to your will. Untie us from these forces. Our practice, our prayers, and finally our posture. Our posture. Churches have a personality. Did you know that? Before you landed here, maybe you were a church hopper. Um, That's okay. That's cool. You finally got it right. It's okay. But churches have a personality. And if you've been around churches enough and have done church enough, you can feel it within the first five minutes of walking in the space. The way she walks and the way she talks. And I mean, there is a way about a church. It is, after all, an organism. It's an expression of the body of Christ. But I have three sons. Each of them have a personality. Each of them have a way about them. A local church is the same thing. Some churches are very outgoing and gregarious. Some churches are us four, no more, shut the door and let it pour. The chosen frozen, okay? It's true, right? It's true. Baptized in vinegar. Just miserable, miserable people. The church has to have a posture when it comes to justice. And the Apostle Paul says its words like this. It's patience. It's gentleness. It's kindness. In chapter 5 of Galatians, he unpacks the fruit of the Spirit. We know love, joy, peace. Most of us memorize up to that point, and then it kind of gets a little weird after that. Love, joy, peace. Goodness, Happiness. Amazon (sighs) self-control. Now, right buried in the center of that is patience, gentleness, kindness. You know why those are so important? It's because justice is complicated. It's just complicated. It's not as black and white as we in our political parties, and our self-elevation and justifications like to make it. To go slow with someone, not just through relief, but through restoration, not just restoration, but reform. To go slow with people, patience, kindness, gentleness. One of my favorite novels by Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, turned into a great musical opera. One of my favorites, Love It to Pieces. In the center of that story, the protagonist Jean Valjean, the story begins. he's been incarcerated, and justifiably so. He's a criminal. He was arrested for stealing. And you're like, "Yeah, that's what we do. You steal something, you get arrested. That makes sense. Perfect black and white. What's the big deal? Well why did he steal? Why does it matter? Because I'm patient, I'm gentle, I'm kind. because his sister and his nephew were starving and they had nothing to eat. And so he stole a loaf of bread. Well, he shouldn't have stolen, they shouldn't be hungry. Both are true, but the posture of a church needs to be patient, it needs to be gentle, it needs to be kind. Not participants in the fracturing and the tearing of humanity, but the very agency, the body of Christ that will slow and sow what sin has broken. It's complicated. Let me give you another example. In 1966, a man named Charles Whitman climbed a tower in Texas and he shot and killed 15 people and wounded 31 others. They affectionately call him the Texas Tower Sniper. Murdered, murdered 15 people and injured 31 others. Would you cry out for justice? One of them was an unborn baby. Would you cry out for justice? Yes, yes, that's wrong but it's also complicated because leading up to that, this 25-year-old had cried out for help, went to psychiatrists. It was noted he suffered from serious, serious PTSD. Did not want to become like his father who abused his mother in front of him struggled with anger, struggled with hostility, wanting to do the right thing at every turn, discharged from the military. Until one fateful morning, he'd reached a breaking point because something was wrong on the inside. And so, before he left the house that morning, he killed his mom. You can read his confession. Hoping that she would be delivered to heaven and not have to suffer from the years of pain brought on by. You're like, well, that that doesn't make any sense. It's complicated. He killed his wife. So she would not be embarrassed and have to live with what he was about to do. Then he climbed a tower down in Texas. He killed 15 people seriously wounding 31 others until he was finally stopped by the police. After a second autopsy, they found a tumor at the base of his brain stem near pressing against the amygdala, which affects things like hostility and aggression. It's complicated. What does it mean? What does it mean? Maybe what if you had the opportunity to walk alongside of Charles Whitman, this 25-year-old young man? What would flourishing look like for him? What is relief and restoration and reform look like? for him well you would have to be patient you would have to be gentle you would have to be kind excusing nothing of what was done nothing but maybe to you the father says who will stand in the gap will stand in the gap. And Tyus from the beginning of the story was victorious as long as he rooted himself in his foundation. You couldn't bring him down. You couldn't stop him. It was only when he was lifted up that he was defeated. We as a church family and I release you To speak truth into my life, the life of the elders, our systems, our ministry leaders. Paul, how are we practicing justice? Paul, where are we praying for justice? Show me, Paul, in our structure. Where do we get together to pray about these things? What is our posture, Paul? Are we gentle? Are we patient? Are we kind? Thank you for sharing your time with us and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our HOPE team would reach out quickly promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in that's why jesus came that's why we're here jesus said there's two ways to live your life and a wise man a wise woman builds their life on jesus's instructions god bless